This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, the holiday episode. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number 39, dated December 31st in the year of our Lord, 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. This week's episode is all about the sights and sounds of the happiest time of the year. I've been preaching about the little drummer boy. This is not a beloved icon of the season. It's an example of everything that's wrong in the church today, and I'd be glad to tell you why. I've been reading Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. The spirit of giving manages to escape many of us. Surely the story of Jesus should be enough to make us think of someone other than ourselves. I've been hearing, baby, it's cold outside. And I've been hearing the backlash and the backlash against the backlash. Well, here's my backlash against that. I've been playing chicken foot, a traditional domino game that is a staple at Hammond's family gatherings. It's not my favorite by any stretch of the imagination, but then that's not the point. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. All right, you've all heard the song, right? I've certainly heard the song, sung the song my entire life. And I don't want to get into a debate about whether it's appropriate to have a fictionalized story. Obviously, the the little drummer boy is a fictitious character. He was not, as far as we know, there present at the scene where Jesus was born with Mary and Joseph and all the rest. We understand that this is a, a fictitious tale. Whether you feel it's appropriate or not appropriate to tell a story like that is not the purpose of this discussion. That's not why I'm angry at the little drummer boy. I will tell you why I am. Because he is held up as this icon of generosity and giving what you can and presenting to the Lord whatever might be available to you, even though you have very little. And you know the story, of course. The little drummer boy comes and plays for the for the baby Jesus. She, he says, shall I play for you? And Mary nodded in the, the oxen land kept town, however they managed to do that. And he plays the drum and and then he smiled at me. And it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Except it's not. Let me tell you why. The little drummer boy argues that he has nothing to give to the Lord. And I think that's wrong. In fact, I know it's wrong, and you do too. He has something that he gives to the Lord. He chooses not to. Well, what might that be? Well, you know as well as I do. He has his drum. Now, wait a minute, Hal. Are you, are you suggesting here that this little boy, probably poor by all accounts, that he, he has this one lone possession, this is the thing that clearly he loves the most, you want him to give the drum to the Lord? Surely that's you don't want him to give his only possession. I'm saying yes, that's exactly what I think he should do. I think he should give the drum to Jesus. Why not? Are we suggesting that we are allowed to give the Lord whatever we're willing to give, whatever we can afford to give, whatever's not too special for us? Somebody says, well, how would Jesus use a drum? Well, in the first place, have you ever seen a baby with a drum? I think the babies would do just fine with drums. In the second place, what's he going to do with a drum solo? 
is not about how you're going to bless the Lord, how you're going to improve his life. It's about what kind of service you can give to the Lord. The, the Magi brought presents of great wealth, of great value from a far, far distance because they acknowledged who Jesus was before they ever knew him, before they ever saw him. They knew what an important service this was, and they came prepared to pay a hefty price because they acknowledged the king of kings and wanted to give him a proper service. They gave what they could. The little drummer boy did not. And if you think that I'm making too big of a deal over this, this fictionalized story, let me tell you why I'm making such a big deal about this. Because this is the very same spirit that I see in religious circles all over the place. Among my brethren, among denominations, this spirit of giving as long as it doesn't cost too much. The spirit of giving as long as I don't have to give up anything I really value. As long as it doesn't hurt too much. You know, exactly what kind of a sacrifice we're supposed to be giving that doesn't hurt too much is a little fuzzy in my mind. We're supposed to be a living sacrifice to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 tells us that. Holy and acceptable to God. That's our reasonable service of worship, to be a sacrifice. Well, I'll lay my body on the altar as long as I don't have to give up my hands, as long as I don't have to give up my feet or my eyes or whatever it happens. I, I want to reserve those for me, and I'll give Jesus the rest of it. That's not the way this works. You give the Lord everything. Everything that you have, everything that you are is subject to him. And I find it interesting that the most obvious application of this principle, in my mind at least, is with regard to instrumental music, which is the very subject of the story of the little drummer boy, instrumental music. We have in the New Testament a very clear record of what Jesus wants from us with regard to musical worship. We have, I think, five different passages in the New Testament that talk about musical worship in the Lord's Church. They all talk about singing. That is not under dispute. The first century church sang and did not sing with the aid of instrumental music. That is not under debate. That is not in question at all. It is a historical fact. Everybody knows it. The word a cappella, which we use to refer to instrumental or non-instrumental music, rather. A cappella literally means in the style of the chapel, which is to say church music. A cappella means church music. A cappella is non-instrumental. And, and I have heard plenty of people, including some of my brethren, try to argue from the Bible. Nobody could possibly read the Bible and come away from it thinking that instrumental music is not acceptable in the Lord's church. And that's just ridiculous because that is exactly what six or seven centuries worth of Christians did. They read the Bible and they took from it that they were only supposed to sing and they were not supposed to have instruments. And anybody who did offer an instrument was a heretic. This was the standard for centuries among the people of God. We can and we must offer to God what he asks for not what we are prepared to give to him. Give up your drum. If you love the Lord, if you love service to him, be willing to give up your drum, whatever form that drum may take. Anyway, that's why I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. All right, full disclosure time. 
Let me be perfectly honest with you. When I say I've been reading a certain book or piece or website in this particular segment, that may give the impression that I spent the previous week reading that very thing. That is not necessarily true. Uh, some of the readings that I have are, are much longer than I can conveniently cover in an entire week. Some of these books that I have referred to I've read weeks ago or even months ago. I bring that up in the context of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens because in the strictest sense of the word, I have not been reading A Christmas Carol. I haven't read A Christmas Carol in, oh, decades, maybe maybe 40 years. I have read it. I've read it multiple times, but it has been a while. But the memory of A Christmas Carol rings true to me because I have seen it adapted for the screen and for television any number of times. And the story is pretty memorable in and of itself. We remember Ebenezer Scrooge and his rotten attitude toward human beings in general and toward money and and poor Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim and, and all that. And it's a rather touching tale. It is a reminder of how we are supposed to think of others rather than simply of ourselves. And uh, Scrooge is given an opportunity through these visitations from these three ghosts to be reminded of what the Christmas season is supposed to be all about. And there's some debate about exactly how religious Dickens was himself or how religious he intended this story to be. It's really pretty irrelevant for our purposes because whether you get to the spirit of giving through Jesus or not, certainly in this particular season of the year, it is rather typical for us to be encouraged to think of people other than ourselves. And we would all agree that this should be our attitude at all times. In fact, oftentimes we'll say such and such that uh, wouldn't it be great if we had the Christmas spirit all the way around the year? And, and it would be wonderful. And in large measure because of this, because we are inclined to put others before ourselves. Well, if there's any time of the year that we ought to be encouraged, it is the time that we think about Jesus. Now, if you only think about Jesus on December 25th, then you should think about giving around that time. Christians, hopefully at least, think of Jesus much more frequently than that, and more frequently even than just on the Lord's Day every week, but rather at all times, because we are defined by our relationship with Jesus. And so therefore, we spend our days constantly thinking about Jesus and being motivated by Jesus and using him as our example. And trying to become more and more like him. Philippians chapter 2 is kind of the classic text to go to with regard to such things, to remind us of not only the spirit that we should have, but the spirit that Jesus himself had. Starting in verse number 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that's pretty straightforward. We should not simply be motivated by our own needs, our own wishes, our own preferences, but also, and even more so, putting others before ourselves, thinking of other people's interests. And then he gives Jesus as an example of this. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And let me pause there by, uh, and say that if this is an attitude that Jesus had, that ought to be motivation enough. Because if we are trying to be like Jesus in every aspect, and we hear that Jesus was generous, we hear that Jesus was thoughtful, we hear that Jesus was considerate of others, that ought to be sold at that point. 
Absolutely, we'll be generous because we want to be like Jesus. And in fact, as Paul goes on to say here in Philippians chapter 2, no one was ever thoughtful like Jesus. No one was ever generous like Jesus because no one's ever had the opportunity to be. He says there in verse number uh, six, where we left off, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what the New American Standard Bible reads here. And I think that's the, the proper reading here. The idea that he had deity in every sense of the word. And he did not consider that something that he wanted to hold on to, which would be what a selfish one would do. But rather, he let go of such things, some of the things anyway, his heavenly home, his heavenly trappings, as it were. He emptied himself there in verse number seven. He gave up certain aspects of the divine nature, not becoming any less divine himself, but divesting himself of the things that he had to so that he could come down to earth and be with us. Taking the form of a bondservant, not just a human being, by the way, a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the motivation that Jesus gives to us. That is the example that he shows to us. It was more important for him to honor his father, to serve his father's wishes, to obey, and, through no coincidence, also serve us. It's more important for him to do that than to pursue his own glory. And so, therefore, he took upon himself a lifestyle that had no glory. None at all. And I think that's the way, the, the reason that the term bondservant is used here. Uh, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He is willing to accept not only a human existence, which is degrading enough, but also a relatively lowly human existence. If you feel like you're not appreciated, you're not being paid enough, you're not being honored enough by your, your neighbors, how do you think Jesus felt about that? The one who came to the world to save mankind from their sins was disregarded. Isaiah 53 prophesied that such would be the case. As from one who men would uh, hide their face, he was despised. People would pretend like they didn't know him. His own disciples, in fact, at his betrayal, at his trial, refused to acknowledge that they knew who he was. Peter denied three times, even after having been warned that he would deny it and saying that he would never do that. This is who Jesus was. He was willing to exalt us rather than being exalted himself. And it's worth noting here, by the way, that the text goes on to say, for this reason also God highly exalted him. That is Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus received the most glory of anyone who has ever lived and rightfully so after he had served, after he had obeyed, after he had given. And that's a great model for us. If you want to be exalted, if you want to be truly glorified, then you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and allow him to exalt you. James chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that. You humble ourselves in the, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in the proper time. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the opportunity that we have to receive the glory that we want, to receive the adulation, the, the blessings, the eternal home in heaven that we want, that we crave. And our instinct is to prove ourselves our instinct is to brag about ourselves, to show God how wonderful we are. And what we need to do is overcome those instincts. Yes, absolutely work in his service and, and absolutely do whatever you can. But while you are demonstrating your own worthiness, remember to show 
your love and your compassion, your generosity toward others. It's not just about what you deserve and what you have earned. It's not about that at all, really. It's about whether you have accepted the character of Christ, whether you have embraced this concept of giving. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. And if we really believe that, if we really have the character of Christ, then not only one time a year, but at all times during the year, we're going to have motivation to reach out to others and lift them up and to give them what they need. Not so that we'll get anything in return from them, but so that God will see us and God will honor our choices and that God will give us exaltation in his way and in his time. We may or may not see that in this life. Likely we won't. But that's okay, because we are more interested, we're only interested, really, in the exaltation that comes in heaven after this life is over. We're willing to wait for that. Jesus was willing to wait, certainly will be willing to wait. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. One of my least favorite songs in the world, and certainly one of the least favorite songs that I hear in shopping malls this time of the year, is Baby It's Cold Outside by Dean Martin. And various others have covered this. And, and I have to say, I, I caught the anti-baby-it's-cold-outside wind before it became popular. I was against this song before against being against the song was cool. And a few years ago, though, this really caught fire. It suddenly occurred to bulk of the population, especially in this Me Too movement, that this was a song about a man taking a vulnerable woman, a woman to his place, getting her drunk where she couldn't make a sound decision, hearing her say no, 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 and hoping that somehow or another she could become inebriated enough where she would say yes. To put it mildly, I have a problem with that. And obviously a lot of other people do too. People who don't necessarily have daughters in their 20s. So I have a vested reason to, a couple of them, to be against this kind of song. I can't imagine what, what would uh, be going on if my daughter was the, the subject of this song. But I have to say this also. I am not a fan of political correctness. I've never been accused of being a fan of political correctness. I think that there is a real trend in our society uh, toward making speech crimes and, and such like that so dangerous and verboten in our society that people are not allowed to, to speak normally to one another, exchange jokes, that sort of thing. Uh, we ought not be that way. I think that's, that's a dangerous precedent. I think we need to be able to joke with one another. I think we need to be able to have fun with one another, not take one another too seriously. But the backlash against the backlash that I have seen over the last couple of years with regard to this song is inexplicable to me. 
we hear people who we don't necessarily agree with politically, or you may not necessarily politically, accuse the song of of misogyny and and date rape and, and things of that nature. And people who don't like political correctness will throw up their hands and say, people can't take a joke. This is all just in fun. You don't understand. We can't have fun anymore. This is just part of the problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially put themselves in position where they are defending this nonsense. And, and that's a very kind way of putting it. It's not nonsense, in fact. It's sin. Let's call it what it is. And I am, I am horribly offended that my brothers and sisters in Christ would take up the side of drunkenness so they could avoid being on the side of political correctness. That is an embarrassment, to be perfectly blunt with you. I want to remind us of our role in this process. In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and this is one example of it, Ephesians 5 and verse number 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. And it's kind of interesting that the idea of silly talk and, and coarse jesting is mentioned in the context of filthiness here because that's what we are told this song is about. It's just fun. It's just a joke. It's just a lark. And, and maybe in the mind of some it is. But do we really want to put ourselves in position as the people of God where we are looking at sin and turning a blind eye and a deaf ear toward it because we just think it's, uh, it's fun. It's clever. It's fun. You know, it's, it's interesting or, or whatever term we want to use here. Is that really where we want to put ourselves with regard to sin? Is our enjoyment over, a, let's put it bluntly, a mediocre song? Is that so important that we risk damaging our reputation in a sinful world, a world that is eaten up with this kind of thing? And I'm not just talking about social, sexual predators. I'm talking about people who glorify drunkenness and carousing and all that kind of thing. That doesn't necessarily lead to sexual assault. The text here goes on to say in verse number six, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's very easy for us to convince ourselves that sin, when we aren't personally offended by the sin, when it doesn't seem to touch us directly, that sin is not that big of a deal. And this has application all across the spectrum with regard to music, with regard to all kinds of things. I, I've heard, you know, getting out of the, the, the holiday context, people defending country music songs about drunkenness, rock and roll songs about, about sex and illicit sex, cheating on your spouse, premarital sex, et cetera, et cetera. All of my favorite artists from, uh, from secular music have songs with regard to these kind of things. And I've hummed along with them, if not actually sung along with them at various times. And, and at some point you become a hypocrite about this kind of thing. And, and this is one of the reasons why I listen to so as little popular music as I do these days, not because I'm afraid that I'm going to hear the wrong thing, but just because I realize that this is 
I'm getting caught up in a, a system that is in large measure devoted toward glorifying things I don't want to glorify. And I just don't want to be in touch with that. Now, if you want to, that's your business. And you're going to have to draw the line where you draw the line. But wherever you do, make sure that you draw it. Make sure that you stand against something while you're standing for Jesus. Because if you're standing for Jesus, you can't stand in favor of sin. You have to stand against sin. And he goes on to talk about that also in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, skipping down to verse number 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things are... Uh, all things become visible when they're exposed by the light for everything that becomes visible is light. So it's our job to be an alternative to sin, not an excuse for sin. And may God give us the, the encouragement and the courage to do that, even when it means, in our mind anyway, siding with the bad guys. That's a silly argument to make. The only important thing is whether we're siding with Jesus. And if we're siding with Jesus, we're on the right side. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you want to stop listening at this point and go your way, I hope you've found the message instructive, inspiring, and most of all, faithful to God's Word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But if you stick around for a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a way to amuse yourself in a wholesome manner while waiting here in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. Those who follow this podcast are not going to be surprised to hear me say that I believe board games are one of the best ways for people to connect with one another on a social and casual level. It's not the best way to form deep and lasting bonds or, or to bear one another's feelings or find a soulmate or that sort of thing. But as far as getting along, uh, forming a connection, at least a casual connection, being able to emphasize what we have in common rather than what we don't have in common. There's not a lot of ways that are better than board games. And I really celebrate that. And I have really ever since childhood. My family has done so. And so it's not surprising when I say that when we go back to Central Texas for the holiday season, we play games. Uh, my brother, my sister, my parents, as well as Tracy and the girls and me. Uh, as much as we can anyway. Now, you've gotten to have a bit of a glimpse into what kind of games that I enjoy and what kind of games I don't enjoy. Uh, we don't play my favorite games over the holidays. We won't play any game in my top 20. Uh, we pr won't play any game in my top 50. We, there's one that is in my top 100 that we might play, but, uh, but unlikely. More likely, we're going to play... Uh, Chicken foot dominoes, particularly wing, uh, wind star dominoes, because that's what my family likes to play. And before I come across sounding self-righteous and self-sacrificing and all that kind of thing, let me emphasize why I'm saying this. I, I'm not saying that I give up my favorite games because I'm a better person than they are. I'm saying that I give up my favorite games because I don't want to play them. I want to play what everybody else wants to play. The games that we play as a family are basically of, of two categories. We want to play games that have large player counts, if at all possible. And Winstar fits that. I think you can play up to eight uh, playing uh, chicken foot dominoes, at least with the set that we have. 
and uh, we would like to get as many people engaged as possible, which usually is the conversations about my dad. My dad is the, the least game-playing kind of person that we have in our family. He will play Windstar from time to time, and we are glad to have him. We, we want to engage him as much as possible. If he doesn't want to play, that's, that's fine. But we would like to at least offer the option of having everybody in the family engaged at some level, and that's most likely going to happen with, with this particular game. Don't tell my mom that I, I dislike this game. It'll get me in trouble. But uh, I play the game, and I'm glad to play the game. I want to play the game because it's a way to connect with my family. And that's what the holidays are all about. It's not about getting what I want. It's about being there as a part of the family and continuing and reconnecting the bonds that tie us together. In a In a gospel context, in a New Testament context, with regard to the family of God, this is especially poignant, I think. In the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul talks in chapter 8 and 9 especially about the exercise or the non-exercise, as it were, of his liberties, it's interesting that he begins this conversation by talking about love. He says, knowledge uh, makes one arrogant, he says in verse number 1 of chapter 8, but love edifies. If you want to strengthen brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't do it by showing how much smarter you are than everybody else, how much better you are than everybody else. You do it by showing your love. And that's why Paul was willing to not accept pay even though he was entitled to. He had earned it, as it were. He would rather not do that. He would rather forego his liberty. In the context of, of the meat, eating, eating meat sacrificed to idols in this context here, he says, I'd rather never eat meat again. If it would avoid putting a brother or sister in Christ in a compromised position, there's nothing wrong with eating meat. There's nothing wrong with eating meat that's sold in the common marketplace, which may or may not have been part of some kind of idolatrous ceremony during the slaughtering process. If you know it's idolatrous, then absolutely don't eat it. But if you don't know, don't worry about it. But you may have a brother or sister in Christ who does not have that kind of level of faith. They may be offended at any kind of meat purchase. And he says, well, then don't eat the meat. Why would you do that? Why would you put your brother or sister in Christ in a position that, where they feel compromised? Shouldn't you be wanting to do things that will build up your brethren rather than tear down your brethren? That's what we need to be doing as the people of God, as a community of believers. We need to be searching for opportunities to show love rather than showing our superiority in some fashion. It's not a matter of whether I would rather do this than do that, and I'm willing to not do what I want because I'll do what somebody else wants instead. I want to do what my family wants to do. That is my preference. I don't want to play my games. I'm going to avoid playing my games. It'll never come up in conversation. I want to play what they want to play. That is my preference. And that is the way that we need to be living our lives as Christians all the time, putting ourselves in position where we can advance someone else's interest. And if it seems in the moment like you are the only one doing that, if you're the only one who is giving, everybody else is taking, don't worry about that. Are you trying to be a good example? Are you trying to be a Christian? Are you trying to accept Jesus' example of behavior? And if so, and you're doing that, then don't worry about it anymore. Take opportunities, as many as you can, to further someone else's interest, to promote someone else's welfare. Allow them to have their way. This 
exhibition of love, I suspect is going to be contagious. I suspect that it is going to rub off more than you might think. But even if it doesn't, you'll have satisfaction knowing that you are growing closer to Jesus and closer to your brethren. And ultimately, that's the only thing that matters. So whether you're playing games or whether you're exercising with, with regard to brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church, whatever it happens to be, be willing to put others first. Like we've been talking about this, this episode, think of others before you think of yourselves. And in so doing, promote the example of Jesus in your own life and hopefully in the lives of others as well. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you profited from your time here, I have a few requests of you. Please pray for me and for this work. We need more citizens of heaven, and our prayer is that we be part of achieving this objective. Please subscribe to this podcast and give a good rating on iTunes and other sites that allow you to do such things and spread the word to your friends. Please follow my work through my website, www.halhammons.com. There you'll find links to articles, videos, and books of mine. Seek me out on social media. You can find me on Instagram, YouTube, and especially Facebook. Look for me and for my pages, The Final Word, The Preacher, 20 Pages a Week, and Citizen of Heaven. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, The Citizen of Heaven, signing off.